And even though I'm speaking to a group, let's say yesterday there's 5,000 people there. There's people in there, it's a business meeting, but there's people struggling with personal issues. So they'll send a note and hey, you know, I was, I mean, this is at the extreme, but I've gotten emails, I'm sure you have as well. That's like, you know, I was going to end it. I was going to end my life today. But then there's something that you said that just said, okay, one more day, let me keep it going. It's one small step for man. Lift off. We have our to Welcome back to the Super You Podcast. It's the podcast designed to unlock and unleash your inner superpower. I'm Jake with Equal Man Studios. Here's this week's quote. Only those who will risk going too far can possibly find out how far one can go. For today's show, we're reposting an episode from the Mic Drop Podcast, where Equal Man sat down with host Josh Linker. Eric discusses how to bring focus to our work, prioritizing the big versus the busy, how to balance a massive speaking business with health and family, cutting through the noise and standing out, and how keynote speakers can adapt to international audiences. Josh Linker is the number one most booked innovation keynote speaker on the planet. He founded, built, and sold five companies for a combined exit value of over $200 million. He's a New York Times bestselling author of three books in 14 languages, focused on innovation, leadership, startup thinking, reinvention, and leading transformation. Once again, thank you for joining us today on the Super You Podcast. Enjoy this conversation between Eric Quammen and Josh Linker. Welcome to Mic Drop, the podcast for professional speakers. We cover the ins and outs of the business, helping you deliver more impact on bigger stages at higher fees. You'll gain an inside edge through intimate conversations with the world's most successful keynote speakers. I'm your host, Josh Linkner. Get ready for some inspiring mic drop moments together. Today's show is sponsored by Impact 11, formerly known as Three Ring Circus the best and most diverse and inclusive community built for training and developing professional speakers. They're not just elevating an industry we know and love, they work with hundreds of speakers to launch and scale their speaking businesses, earning tens of millions in speaking fees, landing bureau representation, securing book deals, and rising to the top of the field. To learn more and schedule a free intro call, visit impact11.com. That's impactelevene.com. What do you call a six foot five inch tall, bright green glasses wearing digital leadership expert with a perpetual Kool Aid smile? My guest today is the one and only Eric Qualman. Eric has been named the number two most likable author on the planet, coming in just behind J.K. Rowling. In addition to penning not only one, but five number one bestsellers, he's been named a top 50 digital influencer by Forbes magazine. Eric has delivered keynotes in 55 countries and reached over 50 million people with his compelling and inspiring messages. 
And according to him, most importantly, I'm still trying to live up to the world's greatest dad coffee mug I received from my wife and two daughters. In today's conversation with Eric, we cover how to bring focus to our work, prioritizing the crucial and shunning the nagging distractions. How Eric balances a massive speaking business with his health and family. Approaches to creating something distinctive, in Eric's case, his alien green glasses, to cut through the noise and stand out. What we keynote speakers can learn from the number one digital leadership expert. And tactically, how should we adapt to international audiences to drive maximum impact? I just know you're going to love my conversation with this jolly green glasses giant. Eric Wallman, welcome to Mic Drop. No, it's awesome to be here. Thanks, Josh. I've been so looking forward to our conversation. I always look forward to our conversations. You're, you've always been a, a dear friend and a source of inspiration uh, to me. Um, I'd love to have us go back. I was curious because I don't think we, you and I have ever talked about it. How did you get into the speaking business in the first place? Take us back to those early days. I think like a lot of people that are listening to this, I fell into it backwards. And so I grew up in Detroit and I'll give you the short version. I was on the tech side of business. So I worked at Yahoo back when they were kind of the the TikTok or the Facebook of the day. And then I was ahead of marketing at Travel Zoo. And so we started to test a little bit with MySpace. And then I saw, whoa, this is going to really change the way the world functions. And so I wrote a book called Socialnomics, telling people that this isn't just teenage stuff. This is actually for business, for governments. It's hard to imagine now, but at the time, people thought social media was just like this kid's toy. And so Socialnomics was just, hey, this is how the world's going to change by social media. And then they had me speak. The publisher had me speak at an event. And then historically, I have a tendency to mumble in interpersonal communication skills throughout my life. So I had taken Toastmasters when I was in grad school, just from an interpersonal communication standpoint. And then at Travel Zoo, because the founder's German, I was kind of thrown in the fire to deal with the press and also with all the financial institutions when we go on these road shows. So I became kind of a voice of Travel Zoo. So it's kind of a baptism by fire. So one of my classmates said, if there's anyone from our class that would become a public speaker, I would have picked you dead last, which actually is kind of a compliment. And so I would have never thought I'd be in this vocation. But I gave that speech at that book event. It's called Book Expo. It's the largest book event where they launch books. And so they gave me a slot, my publisher at the time. And then some of the audience said, I don't know what you do for a living, but you should speak for a living. And then it took me four years to really go all in. Uh, but that's kind of how I fell into it backwards. I had no idea that this whole world existed. And once you started learning about the world, what, what was going through your mind? How did you decide? Because you obviously are, are very talented in a number of fields. You could have pursued a lot of things. What, what drew you into the world of professional speaking and sort of captured your heart and mind? I just love the impact of the audience, just to be able to get that real-time impact that, oh, you're making a difference, and that people couldn't see at the time what I could see. So I go, well, this would be kind of selfish if I didn't get this word out there. That's the initial start of it. And then I just fell in love with it because just to be able to see the impact that you could have on individuals. Um, and you're right, it wasn't an easy switch because for four years, I basically would take vacation days to go speak. So I was still running this global operation. And eventually I was fortunate enough just to talk with my boss that owned the company and said, hey, I can't manage a team anymore. I'd love to stay on as kind of advisor. Uh, we don't need to get into that. But that's really how I got fell in love with the world of speaking. 
And so when you started, like all of us, I'm sure you weren't on the world's biggest stages. You were, you and I were just chatting earlier and you were mentioning that yesterday you did an event in Vegas and there were two, two keynote speakers, you and Magic Johnson. And, uh, that, that's, that's probably not how it was on, on day one. You were probably like most of us speaking at pancake breakfasts and such. Tell us about those early days. What, what was that like? How did you sort of refine your craft and, and then ultimately launch to where you are now? No, you're exactly right. I always tell people speak for free and we all start speaking for free. And I got so excited when someone would pay for my flight into Atlanta because my brother lived there. I'm like, oh, man, this is great. They're going to pay me just to, to go and speak, which I like to do. And then all of a sudden you start to figure out how this whole thing works. And that's why it's been amazing the work that you've done because it didn't exist when I was there. And so, Josh, you and your team at Impact 11, it's been amazing just to kind of put it more into business context so that people that are new, like I was, I had to figure it out myself. And so what you've been able to develop is fantastic. Obviously, this podcast is amazing for that as well. Uh, but yeah, I bounced around. Most of those events starting off were free. Um, and then, then eventually grew from there. Just someone sat down and goes, you should ask this amount. And they gave me this amount of money. I go, are you kidding me? And they go, yeah, just ask. They'll, they'll probably say yes. And, and I couldn't believe it. I felt so nervous just asking for that amount of money at the beginning. And, and then away we went. So now here we are today. You've been named the number one digital leadership speaker. You've been named the second most likable author only to J.K. Rowling. Uh, amazing. And, and we look at your accomplishments now and it almost seems so impossible for, for many of, of, of those that are just getting started. Um, maybe share with us some of the struggles that you had along the way and how, how did the Eric Qualman that we know today become the Eric Qualman that we know today? For the listeners out there, I mean, I mentioned it. And so you'll even hear it in this interview I have a tendency to mumble. And so that's like one of the biggest challenges. Also, I'm, I'm an introvert extrovert. I'm kind of a combination. When I'm on stage, I love to kind of get into it. But even that's been a learned process to really let go on stage and to divulge some of your personal life, to make it personal so that the, the audience trusts you and leans in a little bit more. So that's been a learned process over the last 12 years uh, from that standpoint, just to make it as personal as possible as you can, as much as you're willing to do on stage and kind of be vulnerable on stage. So historically, that has not my DNA. So that was the biggest challenge. Like, I'm a business person. I'm going to speak about business. You just want the brass facts. And then over time, I mean, I was like a tech guy. So was, that was my background. And then over time, I realized, wait, these people want to be motivated. They want the stories. They want to kind of be edutained rather than just educated. And so that was the biggest shift. And then once you realize that, that really propels you. That really takes you to the next level. But for anyone starting out there, I always say, if you want to speak, speak. You know, they sit there and they want to get all this armor on before they go in. I go, you got to get out there and start testing what works not only content-wise, but also delivery-wise, and also, do you like this? And what do you love about it? And try to figure out what's going to be, where are you going to carve something out for yourself? Such great advice. And, you know, just to, to, to emphasize, I appreciate you sharing that. You know, again, when we see people at your level of success, it, it feels unattainable. But as you point out, you were, you were voted last likely to be a public speaker. You mumbled. It wasn't your thing. You have some introvert tendencies. So, like, you weren't born the, the rock star that you are today. You had to develop those skills. And that, that actually is really encouraging because it's a learned skill. It's something that we can all learn to, to develop and cultivate. Um, you said something, though, I want to drill on. You said something about, you know, find out what you really love about speaking. What is it that you really love about speaking? What, what fuels you today? What, what, what have you fallen in love with about, about the craft of, of this, this oddball profession? 
I love when just getting an email or maybe it's a text from an audience member that says, you changed my life. Like I switched vocations because of you. You gave this speech, you showed this video when you're on stage. And at that moment, I know I wanted to do this. And I switched vocations and it really changed my life. Or, I mean, it can get kind of dark too if you get in front of enough people. There's a lot of mental illness out there. And even though I'm speaking to a group, let's say yesterday there's 5,000 people there. There's people in there, it's a business meeting, but there's people struggling with personal issues. So they'll send a note and, hey, you know, I was, I mean, this is at the extreme, but I've gotten emails, I'm sure you have as well, that's like, you know, I was going to end it. I was going to end my life today. But then there's something that you said that just said, okay, one more day, let me keep it going. Um, and I'm definitely not trained in that area to handle those type of situations. But to get those type of emails and those communications, that's what I really love about it is how can you impact someone's life? How can you change just one person? Even if it's just one person throughout your career, you know, that's a successful career. If you just changed, positively impacted one person. What a beautiful sentiment. And, and I agree. I mean, to a degree, as speakers, we're in the aha business. We help people make new connections, form new opinions, see the world differently. And it can really have a wonderful and positive impact. You know, for me, I love learning. I love the stagecraft. I love um, teaching. I love sharing. I love storytelling. And I know you love many of those things, too. Uh, we, we talked about what you love about it. Maybe hate is a strong word, but what don't you like about the speaking business? Well, I think for yourself and also a lot of the listeners, it's really the travel. And so it's trying to figure out, it's really the time and the complications we all are faced with with travel. And so trying to figure out how to deal with it. And so for me, I've got two young kids at home. I've got two young daughters. Uh, they're growing up quickly. And so I didn't want to, I want to make sure I didn't miss that time. And so trying to figure out what works well with the family. What, what can you put in place so that it works for you? And then so for us, it's my wife fortunately loves to travel. So during the summer, we take the kids. So we've been, because of the speaking career, we've been to Vietnam, we've been to Singapore, we've been to Spain, France, Portugal, on down the list. So it's, it's been invaluable. Uh, once they're in school, then it's just a, it's something that I've learned to figure out how do I physically and mentally handle travel. And so I've been able to figure out systems so that I can sometimes speak in three different cities in two countries in two days. Now, over time, as you get older, it's a little harder, but that's been something we've put in place. And also I've got, we track it to make sure I'm not away from the kids too often. So then that adjusts our business. So I live in Austin. We try to get a lot of events that are Dallas, Houston, San Antonio, and more and more people are coming to Austin. And so that doesn't count as a day away because I'm at home. I speak and then I'm at home that same evening. So uh, that's probably been the biggest challenge is just uh, trying to do that balance with the family and the travel. Double clicking on that. Are there any hacks or, or, or systems that you, know, you talked about the systems? What are some of them that, that, that the speakers listening can learn from on how they can balance you know, work and family in, in their own situation? Uh, first, when you're signing a contract, make sure what time is that event. So I, see, I know that sounds pretty intuitive, but literally you might have someone that helps you sign your contracts or it's a bureau that's signing them. And then they're indifferent at what time it is. So they'll just kind of put the contract together. So you want to make sure I actually review every contract. And specifically, the first thing I look for is what time 
am I speaking? And so over time, what works best for me is that morning kickoff. Uh, a couple reasons, because I know there's not other speakers in front of me. So someone might have said something I already said. And if I wasn't in the event, I'm not aware of that. Everyone else in the room is, but I am not. So being the first speaker of the event in the morning to help kick things off, and I'm a morning person, so that also helps, is that there's a couple reasons you want to do that. One, your content's fresh. You don't know if someone already said something that you did. Uh, and then also, it allows me to get back out, fly back out in the morning. So I fly in the night before. That gives me some safety. And then I speak first thing in the morning and try to get out. That doesn't always work out. Sometimes they say, no, it's a night event. You have to be here for night. But just being more intentional, that's a system of what time you're speaking. Uh, From a physical standpoint, as hard as it is to do, I just made a rule. I don't drink the night before I speak. And most of the time when we're at these events, they have a cocktail reception. So they're expecting you to drink. Or if you're in South America, my wife's from Colombia, different culture. So we always say Eric can be great at night or great in the morning, but he can't be both. So what do you want him to be? Do you want him to be at this this cocktail reception till 11 at night? Or do you really want him to rock the stage at 8 a.m.? That's such a great way to frame it. And I'm sure, you know, how could a client choose the wrong thing there? It's amazing. And, um, you know, one of the things I admire about you is your, is your, your, your thoughtfulness and your intentionality. Your most recent book, The Focus Project, Pursuing Less in Order to Achieve More. Um, how does that weave into this intentionality? What, maybe you can give us a little hint of what the book is about and, and perhaps what we as speakers can learn from your body of work. So the book is called The Project because all of us, I was realizing my hair's on fire at the end of every day. And so this isn't sustainable. And ironically enough, I run the organization. So if I don't feel like I'm in control, then I bet other people out there in the world feel like their hair's on fire and they're not in control. So I started talking to school principals. I started talking to CEOs, to senators, and everyone was in the same boat. They had time famine. They just felt like they were running a million miles an hour on a treadmill. So that's why I did the focus project to figure out over, this isn't a new problem, right? It goes back thousands of years. How do I focus on the big versus the busy? So I started to test old concepts, new concepts, just to figure out what might work and what might not work. And so it's been, it's been revolutionary for me and, I, and I, I'm learning every day. So I'm just trying to get 1% better when it comes to that focus. But it's been revolutionary for me when it comes to what I do for a living. Uh, part of it, you'll, you'll laugh at this, as a speaker, and uh, this is funny because it happens to a lot of people we interviewed, very successful people, is that you start getting pulled in a million directions. So then all of a sudden, literally for the week, I might put zero minutes, except for when I'm on stage, into the speaking business. So I'm not being intentional, as you mentioned, being intentional with the business. And so a couple times a year, we always pause in our small team here. We go, let's get back to the biggest part of the business, which is me speaking on stage. Other than getting pulled, you can get pulled in many directions. Let's run this website. We're running this, this thing that we do over here. Or we're doing this board game. So there's a lot of things that pull you in different directions. So uh, that's a key learning from the focus project itself for me is how do I be intentional with every minute? Becoming a keynote speaker is an amazing profession. The top performers earn millions in annual income while driving massive impact on audiences around the world. But the quest to speaking glory can be a slow route with many obstacles that can knock even the best speakers out of the game. If you're serious about growing your speaking business, the seasoned pros at Impact 11 can help. 
From optimizing your marketing and business efforts, to crafting your ideal positioning, to perfecting your expertise and stage skills, Impact 11 is the only speaker training and development program run by current high-level speakers at the top of their field. That's why the major bureaus like Washington Speakers Bureau, Premier Speakers, Speak Inc., Executive Speakers, Harry Walker Agency, Kepler, Gotham Artists, and GDA all endorse and participate in Impact 11. From interactive boot camps to one-on-one coaching, if you're looking to take your speaking career to the next level, they'll help you make a bigger impact faster. For a free 30-minute consultation, visit impact11.com forward slash mic drop. So good. Maybe you could share a little bit more. Like if, if we dug into the book, what are some of the other key findings or insights or, or revelations that you, you, you share in the book that, again, we could take as speakers and apply to our own speaking practice? Yeah, first and foremost, just think about, and this is covered in a lot of different periodicals over thousands of years, what's the one thing that makes everything else either easier or unnecessary? And always go back to that first principle. What's the one thing that makes everything else either easier or unnecessary? And your huge list, because you've got 60 things on that to-do list. If I gave you 48 hours, you're not getting them done. So it's not a time issue. It really isn't. It's an energy management issue. So number one is what's the one thing you need to focus on? And try to attack that during your power hour. So try to figure out, and this is a simple way to do it, but all you listeners out there, kind of close your eyes. Think of a Saturday. It's a Saturday morning. And no one's getting you up. There's no alarms. There's no kids jumping on your head. I know it sounds like a fantasy, but literally Saturday morning, if nothing was going to wake you up, when would you naturally wake up? When would you naturally get out of bed? And so if you get up before seven, you know, you're you're a robin, you're an early bird, so you're a robin. Most of us are eagles. If you got up between seven and 10, you're an eagle. And then if you got up after 10, you're a night owl. So the key is, you want to attack your power hour. So basically, after a half hour, if you've kind of woke your wake, after a half hour, you do your stuff in the morning. That hour after that first half hour, you naturally wake up. You need to attack that one thing that'll make everything else either easier or necessary before your brain gets drained. Because it's like, a, it's like an iPhone. Over the course of the day, that battery drains. And so figure out if you're a robin, eagle, or an owl, and attack that power hour as much as you can. Some days you can't do it, but most days just focus on that one thing that really is going to take your speaking business to the next level. Mm, such great wisdom. You know, it's often been said that that focus is a lot of what you say no to, not what you say yes to. What are some of the things that you say no to? I mean, you're right. You're, I'm sure you're inundated with people like me. Hey, be on my podcast. You know, <laughs> like what what are the things that you know? How do you how do you think about what do I say no to? Because honestly, for me, it's hard. I like to say yes to everything, as do many people. And then what you do is you become an unfocused, tangled mess of spaghetti. What? How do you say no? What 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 guidepost do you use to 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 reject something rather than accept it? Yeah, good guidepost is uh, if it's not a hell yes, it's a hell no. So think of it's not a hell yes. Oh, hell yes, I want to do that. Then it should be a, a hell no. Hell yes could be, hey, do you want two tickets to this jazz concert? Hell yes. You want two tickets to the Super Bowl that the Lions are in in 2040? Hell yes. <laughs> uh, but if it's not a hell yes, it's a hell no. Because Josh, as you mentioned, most of us are people pleasers. And that does us well most of the time. But you got to also remember if you say yes, this is... Because historically, I'd say yes to everything. And so once I did this project, I realized, wait, I'm saying yes to everyone. That means I'm really saying no to everyone. Meaning I'm not able to put my full self in there. So everyone loses. 
And so it's really about the art of saying no and saying it quickly and strongly. I mean, that's not easy to do. Just a quick story from the book is I volunteer my time at church with my girls. Now, this is because I travel so much. I want to make sure I spend time. So we're going to go to church. So why not volunteer? So I'm with the girls uh, for another hour. And, but invariably, they don't have enough volunteers for the boys at the age. The boys are a little harder to handle. No one really wants to volunteer for the boys. And so historically, what would happen is they go, hey, Eric, I know you volunteer for the girls, but can you handle the boys today? And I'd go, sure. Because, I mean, it's church. You're like, what kind of volunteer am I? I'm just like on my own terms. But then eventually I said, you know, I, I did sign up for the girls because I travel a lot. I want to spend. So I write this email. And I'm like, that good. I said, no, I'm done. And then they come back and say, actually, can you really work with the boys? Because I know you want to work with the girls, but we really don't have enough for the boys. I'm like, I got to stick to my gun. So I copy and paste the same email back. And then so they switched this other lady. And this isn't always going to be rainbows and unicorns, but I got to spend time with my girls. But the girl that had, the lady that had switched to handle the boys, she found out she likes dealing with the boys better. Now, that's not always going to be the case, but I was so proud of myself in that moment. And it wouldn't have happened without writing the book. If I wasn't in the process of writing the book, I would have succumbed and just said, I'll do it. And then everyone would have been a lose-lose. And this situation worked out to be a win-win. Love that. Love that. So I want to switch a little bit because I, I, we could talk about your, your writing. I mean, I, I'm fascinated. I, I've read your books and I'm a huge, uh, I'm kind of a super fan of yours. But um, I want to switch to the speaking business. One thing when we, we think Eric Qualman, and I say we meaning the, 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 the entire world we, we think of bright green glasses. This is your signature look. You're wearing them now. I know this is an audio recording, but I, I'm looking at your beautiful, shiny, cool, certain color green glasses. And this is not an accident. Back to being intentional. Tell us the story of, of how you came up with this, how you are known for it, what green glasses has meant, because I think so many of us speakers are trying to find something to cut through and to be distinctive. And you've done that in a really special way. It's a visual cue that's instantly recognizable around the world. Help us understand the, the myth and the legend of the green glasses. No, I mean, and I'll tell the story. I'll try to keep it as tight as possible. But you're right. A lot of things happen organically. And then from there, then you have to be intentional with it. And it doesn't have to be something physical. Like Brene Brown, her superpower is when she came on stage at TED and was very vulnerable, said she had a psychiatrist. She's like, a psychiatrist? This is well ahead at the time. Now it's kind of accepted, partly because of her work, that, hey, some people are rental, wrestling with mental issues. And so it doesn't have to be a physical thing that you embrace around your personal brand, but you have to be intentional. Definitely have to be intentional. So my name's Eric Qualman. So when they hand out email addresses, it's first initial, last name. So it's equal man. And, and I didn't like it. For 15 years, I kind of resisted it. Partly because I'm in Detroit, I'm working at Cadillac, they're like an intern, hey, we need some coffee. Well, Equal Man, you got a superhero name, you must be fast, why don't you go get the coffee? And so I resisted it, didn't really like it. And then in a moment in time, I realized I'd always thought this was happening to me rather than for me. And so you want to look for those opportunities where you're thinking, I can't believe this is happening to me, I'm not getting speaking deals. But then you look back and go, something might be happening for you. And that's exactly what happened for me. So I think my book, Digital Leader, was doing well. So we did an interview for a magazine. They wanted to take a, a photo for the cover. And they said, hey, your unique email moniker, do you mind, for the cover, we want to have some fun. Do you mind wearing some Clark Kent, like Superman glasses? I'm like, yeah, we can do that. And they go, well, it's our St. Paddy's Day issue. Do you mind if they're green? 
I'm like, yeah, bring it out. Let's do it. We'll have some fun. They bring them out. I'm like, whoa, those are bright, like alien green. But we take the photo. And then a couple weeks later, I fly to Kenya to give a talk. And I've, this is the first time I've been to Kenya at this point. So I wanted to figure out what Kenya is all about the night before, which is another tip for speakers. You really need to know where you're speaking and who you're speaking to. So do as much recon as you can the night before when you're on the ground. So I go to a rescue shelter to adopt a baby cheetah. And not to take home, my wife would kill me, but just to support the local area. And on the ride over, the lady that I'm with, she says, hey, you know, Usain Bolt, the Olympic sprinter, was here two days ago. He adopted from the same litter you're going to adopt from. And we filmed him. We'd love to film you, marry that footage together to raise more money for the shelter. And I go, yeah, it sounds great. It's a great idea. You should do that. And then she pauses and looks at me and goes, and I'm not wearing green glasses. She goes, but when we're filming, we want to make sure you're wearing your green glasses. And I look back at her and go, I don't walk around the world wearing these green glasses. I look like a fool. That was just for that magazine. And then she pauses and looks at me and the look of disappointment was like, no, everyone in Kenya, that's what they think you look like. That's the expectation that we're going to have tomorrow. So I kind of fell into it by accident, but it was that moment that I realized, wait, this isn't happening to me. It's happening for me. It's time to step into that discomfort and really own equal man. And the only way that I could own it, because I don't, wearing bright green glasses, people are going to look at you. And again, when I'm off the stage, I kind of want to just kind of be introverted, kind of do my thing. But if I can help one person just from the green glasses, then it's worth me wearing them. Um, And we don't have time to go into different stories that have happened since then because of the green glasses, being able to help people or even getting booked for business uh, because of the glasses, because some person will come up to me and start a random conversation. They happen to have an event coming up. And so over time, it's just kind of taking ownership of it. And we've had fun with it. Now we've had a first couple, I mean, the last several years ago, they started going, Hey, can we get some of those glasses? We're like, yeah, you can order them over here. And they go, no, we'd really like you to produce them and handle it for us. And so now we're in the business of making these glasses. They'll put them on everyone's chair at events. And so it's just been, it's been a wild ride. It's crazy to think about. I would never would have expected this. They were the business of selling these green glasses. But again, it, it all stems from, can I help one person with these glasses? And people are having fun with it now. So we kind of step into it. Uh, at the beginning, we lost business, some of business because of it. Because at the time, most speakers were wearing suits. They're like, we can't have, we're just a business meeting. We can't have a guy with green glasses on there. The world's kind of shifted. And so we're willing to lose that business to gain other business. And then in time when the world shifted, it's just been a benefit that we've had. I love that. I mean, first of all, the fact how it came to you and even the fact that you were, you're you're coming in the night before a speech and, and volunteering and adopting cheetahs, it just speaks volumes to, to the to the amazing person that you are. Um, but but this notion of the green glasses, I think everybody, all of us need to think about what what's our green glasses. It doesn't mean you're going to get purple glasses. It means that what's the thing about you that's distinctive could be your heritage. It could be, you know, just but something. And, and, and so if we can all find that one little something that makes us special and stand out, I mean, that's really how we can cut through the, the, the competitive set and ultimately shine on, on the world's biggest stages, Eric, exactly as you are, which is just so darn inspiring. Um, I had another question because you mentioned Kenya and I know on your website it's, you've, you've spoken in over 55 countries. Uh, could you give us your sense of how do you adapt to those 
international opportunities. Uh, certain language things that we say in the U.S. don't apply there. There's cultural nuances. There's religious implications in some cases. How do you make your message, even though it's a universal message, how do you adapt it so that it feels really relevant and on point to audiences that are not sitting in Detroit, Michigan or Austin, Texas? It's a great question, and I love that you have this podcast because a lot of people can learn from mistakes that I've made and others that you've guessed that you've had on here. Is that first uh, these you have a prep meeting before you go? As you know, most of your listeners, when you've given a talk, you have prep meetings leading up. And at the beginning, as a new speaker, this is going back twelve years ago, I used to go, "Oh, prep meeting! I don't have time for this. Like this is gonna be an hour." And then I realized, wait, I want more and more prep meetings. Anytime you want to meet, let's have that prep meeting. Because not only am I going to be better prepared for that audience, it helps me deepen that relationship with that partner. Because what I've learned is that if you do well and you stay in this business long enough, they're not going to have you back the next year, but they will have you back a third year or maybe five years from now. They're like, hey, we can bring you back again because it's been long enough. We can bring you back. Or as you write new books, they go, hey, I heard you have a new book. You have a new topic. Yep. Okay, let's bring you back. And so those prep meetings, I love now. I embrace them and tell my team, if they ever want a prep meeting, the more the merrier, let's have those. And then you've got to ask those poignant questions about what's different and try to listen, really listen on those calls and you'll pick stuff up about the language they're using. And then if you can, you can look at previous speakers that have gone to that event. Now, I've been blessed now with 12 years. Over time, you speak in enough countries. As you go back to those countries, you learn your lesson. So I learned it the hard way at first. I was speaking in Austria. And in America, they want to be edutained, right? You've got to have that sex. You've got to have that sizzle. And then the story wrapped in it. They still want to be entertained in Europe or in Austria, but they also want a lot of facts that are more fact-based than, say, an American audience. And so after I got done, and the event went okay, this lady came up, she goes, that was pretty good, but it was very American. I'm like, what does that mean? So I sat there and talked with her at length, and then I realized over time, okay, different cultures, different delivery. And so that was important, how you dress, how you speak. Is there a translator? You got to speak slower. What jokes translate? And so fortunately, over time, you start to learn, okay, videos, when I'm at a different event, if I show a lot of videos, I'm a video storyteller. Can this video work if you didn't understand the language? And ironically, that actually makes it more powerful if that video is in English. It makes it more powerful for the English audiences I'm in as well. So over time, you figure out, okay, 60% of what I'm going to speak on, that works universally because I figured that out. Here's how I have to switch things out. Okay, this country doesn't understand a Jetsons Flintstones reference. They didn't grow up watching that. So that doesn't make any sense. Or there's a translator. Okay, I got to speak slower. All right, maybe more videos if there's a translator that don't require you to understand a language when you watch that. Q&A is a little different when you're in these different markets. So trying to figure out what questions they're interested in and making sure you have seed questions if it's a shy audience. Say if you speak in a country in Asia where they're they're not prone to maybe ask a question. So it's really over time figuring out, just like a good comedian who's trying to figure out what jokes work where, you're trying to figure out content across different countries. If it's your first time going to a country, be curious, dig into it, watch other speakers, see what works, what doesn't work. 
The word that keeps echoing in my mind, Eric, is intentionality. You're, you're intentional about your focus and your family. You're intentional, I know, about your health. Obviously, you're in great shape. You're intentional about your, your green glasses, your approach to foreign markets. And, and, and I wanted to, you know, kind of as we wind our conversation down, talk about your intentionality around uh, digital leadership. You're, you've, you're named the number one digital leadership speaker. You've been named uh, by external sources the top, a top 50 digital influencer. What is digital leadership and what are some of the strategies that we as speakers can use, again, to be intentional about our speaking businesses as we grow them in the digital realm as well as on physical stages? Yeah, it's a great question. I was listening to your podcast with Sean and you guys had great insights saying, you know, you can pick a topic or you can pick your speaking career. I'm kind of getting this wrong, but it's just giving it a quick summary. But you've got to pick your speaking career. And so when I first started speaking, it was on social nomics. So it's very specific to social media. And number one, I knew that that that's actually lasted longer than I thought. I still get booked for socionomic speeches, but it's just it's not the lion's share of what I do right now. I realized when I was speaking and also long term and also speaking with some of these companies like Mont Blanc would bring me in. The CEO would go, we need a social strategy. I'm like, okay, you're selling watches, you're selling pens, these high end ten thousand dollar watches. Wait, you don't even sell these directly online? You only go through your maisons, your retail outlet? No, 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 no. We're not talking social until we get an e-commerce strategy in place. And so I realized that these leaders in this digital era didn't have that digital leadership capability. And so that was the biggest thing lacking, not an understanding of social media. It was much bigger. So that's what got us into digital leadership. And at an, a short answer, if someone asked me, how do you define digital leadership? A one-sentence answer is empathy. Do I care enough to fix your problem or most importantly, remove friction? Um, and obviously you're the world's most foremost expert on innovation. Most innovation is actually not additive, it's subtractive. Can I take that friction away? So that's really digital leadership at its core is really do I have empathy? Do I have empathy for that customer, my teammate, uh, my partner? Do I care enough to show that I'm willing to go the effort, extra effort using digital tools or not to make things happen? Such brilliance, my friend. Well, I wish we had more time. I, I could hang out with you all day, um, uh, but we have to, to to conclude our conversation. I want to end with one question. You said earlier, you know, instead of something happening to you, maybe it's happening for you. So I know that when you look back, I, I presume you don't have a whole bunch of regrets. But my question is this. If I asked you to give a piece of advice to the younger Eric Qualman, the Eric Qualman that was just getting started in the speaking business, that just was, you know, finishing things up at Travel Zoo and was looking at stages and saying, God, can I do this? Do I want to do this? What piece of advice would you give to the beginner speaker, Eric Qualman, today? Focus on the big, not the busy. So I grabbed a lot of things that were just so new. I was saying yes to everything. And I should have just looked at it and said, nope, that's the big, that's the big opportunity. Instead of doing these 10 things, that's what I love to do and focus on doing that big thing. Uh, we started a social agency. I didn't want to do it because it wasn't in my DNA, but I got asked enough by some, I'd get done speaking like, hey, can you run our social? And I talked to our small team and they really wanted to do it. So I'm like, all right, but I can't be involved and so we kicked off with this big brand to run their social, to be an actual physical agency. And that did not work on either side of the equation. And I kind of knew that if I wasn't all in to not do it. And so that was a big learning uh, and a big lesson because I missed other opportunities because I had selected that one, even though I knew it wasn't in my DNA to, to run a big agency like that. 
Well, what a perfect way to, to end our conversation. The 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 big Eric Qualman, big in, in physical height, of course, but uh, <laughs> but big in influence and big in impact. You've got a, a big, generous heart, and I really appreciate you sharing it with us today. Um, people should, can find you at equalman.com. Is that correct? Yeah, equalman.com. Equalman across the board, anywhere and everywhere. Amazing. Well, thanks again for your time, my friend. Thanks for continuing to make such an impact on the world, leaving your fingerprints across 55 countries and counting. Uh, All the best out there on the road, my brother. No, same to you. Good to see you. And just an honor to be a friend with you. And I love what you're doing here. So thanks for keeping change the world. You're making it easier for people like me and everyone out there. So uh, really appreciate what you're doing. I wish I had more time with Eric. I just love his energy, humility, and generosity. A few things stood out from our conversation. Number one, when things don't go our way, reframing it from something happening to us into something happening for us. Man, brilliant. Number two, I love how Eric sets boundaries with his time and focus so he can show up fully to the things that matter most instead of being stretched thin and burnt out. And number three, there's nothing about Eric that's unintentional. His look, his content, his approach to building his keynote business, and yes, even his green glasses. Inspiring to see the power of intentionality in action. We can all see why Eric is giving J.K. Rowling a run for her money, and I wouldn't be surprised if he passes her soon as the world's most liked author. He's certainly one of my all-time favorite humans. I hope you're feeling as energized and inspired as I am. I can't wait to double down on my own focus, intentionality, and genuine desire to serve. Maybe that equal man is a superhero after all. Seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. Super, 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 super you. Ah!